If you've not turned there already, please turn in your Bibles to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi. That's a Steve Hafler joke. Oh, Lloyd Domingo's joke. Okay. Thanks, Lloyd. Appreciate it. If you're a sports fan, you are fully aware of the emotional state that we call being disillusioned. If you're a Rockies fan, you know that intimately, especially as we come through May and they many times tempt us with how well we think they're doing. And then we sort of move into June and it seems like the wheels come off the bus and they just let us all down. So, we, so right now, most of us, the Rockies fans, we, we have our hopes are high. June is coming. I don't know how they're going to destroy it this year, but, you know, maybe they will. Maybe they won't. All of us in our, in our lives know there's times where there's things that we have invested in, time, energy, emotional strength, emotional time. And we don't get the result we want. We don't see the, result, the uh, results or the success that we're looking for. We end up coming to a decision or a business deal or some, a goal that we're trying to pursue and we fall short. We don't experience what we think we should be experiencing. Here in the book of Malachi, the people of God are well past the point of disillusionment. They have even crossed from disillusionment into disobedience. The temple now has been built for a good 60 to 80 years. Malachi is writing after Haggai and Zechariah about 60 to 80 years. And they've been waiting. They've been looking for the presence of God. They've been looking for his glory to be on display as the prophets proclaimed. And so far, it seems like life is just continuing as normal. They're still under the oppressive overlord of Persia, though they have freedom. It's not the same. They're not independent. They're not their own nation. They're not by themselves. They're not experiencing this overwhelming wealth and blessing of God that they anticipated. They're not seeing any special physical manifestation of God in the temple. They're disillusioned. And their disillusionment has led them to disobedience. But here's the grace of the book of Malachi, that even in these times, God in his covenant love continues to pursue his people. God in his love continues to pursue them. And, and in God's love, as he shows that, as he reminds his people of that, he's, he's wanting to compel his people to come back, to respond, to repent, and to live lives of full worship and full obedience to him. We've read already from the New Testament this morning about how John the Baptist fulfills one of the prophecies that, that Malachi hits on about a messenger who will come and prepare the way of the Lord or the way of God's messenger. And even Malachi, though, points us to the reality that the one true messenger of God who will bring about this love, who will demonstrate this love and this purifying holiness of God to his people is going to be Jesus himself. It's going to be God himself. We're not going to be able to unpack all of those dynamics this morning. In fact, that's one of the frustrating things about doing one sermon for each of these books, right? We only have time to hit on a few of the pieces and kind of hit it at a high level. But one of the great joys for us as we go through each of these books one at a time with seeing the major themes unpacked is that hopefully it gives you a flavor and it gives you a, a taste so that you can go back and begin to study these books more and more. 
The book of Malachi is written in a very unique way. It's written differently than all the other minor prophets. In fact, it's very clearly divided in six sections along the lines of six disputes that God has with his people. And so some would even say that this is this sort of question and answer sort of teaching and, and dialogue. There's these six disputes of God with his people, and we see that very clearly laid out. God makes a statement about himself, as we're going to see this. This will be our outline uh, for each of the sections. God will make a statement about who he is and his character. He is going to make an accusation or a dispute against the people. The people will respond, probably in a um, hypothetical way, the prophet speaking on behalf of the people, how they would respond. Or maybe the people actually said things like this. And as they do, and as they ask these questions, then God responds with his answer and his command and how he will intervene and his requirements for his people. So, the people of God, sort of disillusioned with their lives, tempted with disobedience, and now God comes with a dispute against them. This book is actually very easy for us to identify with as Christians. Just think of where Malachi is placed in the, in the canon. What's next? What's next? Well, some blank pages in your Bible which represent, metaphorically, some people have said these are 400 years of silence. So in one sense, this is the final revealed message of God to his people that is supposed to sustain them throughout this time of silence. For us, where do we live in redemptive history? Yes, we have God's word, but we live between the times, between the times of God's first advent through Christ and the second advent. We're sort of in this waiting period. We're sort of in this time like the people of God here. And it's easy for us to become disillusioned and maybe disenchanted and very easily fall into disobedience against God, even as his people. So one of the other cool things about Malachi and one of the questions that I wrestled through for the past few weeks I was studying it is, is there a sort of sequence or progression to the uh, accusations or to the questions or to the disputes that God has against his people. The reason I ask that is because of how it begins in verse 2. And look with me in verse 2. Here's the first words of God to his people. I have loved you. I have loved you. God says. And the first question that the people come back with is this very cynical, disenchanted question saying, but How have you loved us, God? And so this got me thinking about the rest of the disputes that would come. And I encourage you to to wrestle through this yourself, because I'm not quite sure I've answered all all the questions in my mind myself. But if we begin to question the love of God and how he's poured out his love on our lives, is this not the starting place for us to begin to pull away from God and to reject him? Whether you are a believer already who says, yes, I'm, I'm a Christ follower, but, but you begin to question Christ's love for you. What is the path away from living in the reality of that love and falling into sin and disobedience in your Christian life? Or if you're here this morning and you don't even identify as a Christian, you say, I've, I totally question the love of God. Well, here's the first question to you is will you come to grips with the reality that there is a God in heaven who does love? And that is the ultimate question for you. So I just wonder if there's this progression. As we go through, we'll see how the the accusations progress, because they progress in this way. At first, God accuses them of of questioning his love. 
And then God accuses them of rejecting him as their as his father and master. And then they reject him as their father and creator. And then he they reject him as the God of justice. And then they reject him as the God who is faithful, who never changes. And then they just simply reject him as the God of truth. And the result of this, if you're allowed to continue down this path of thinking and questioning God, even where he's spoken clearly, the the result of that, the end result, is total disbelief and total rejection of God and his salvation. So that's why the book ends. Look with me at the very last verse of the book. Here's the warning. I'm going to send my messenger to you, so here's a hope of promise, a statement of promise. But here's the warning. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Why and why would God do that if the people would not receive his word, if they would not hear and they would continue down their path of unbelief and disobedience? So here's the cycle. So here's the first statement. God's, God loves his people. Chapter 1, verse 2 to 5. And this is a short section, and it sort of sets the stage and the backdrop for our, the, the discussion of the rest of the book. As we've read already, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But the people respond. But you say, how have you loved us? The attitude of the people is very cynical and incredulous. They're, they're unwilling to believe that God actually loves them. There's deep doubt and disillusionment that is lodged in their hearts. But look at verse 2, the second half to verse 5. And here's how God answers them. Here's how God wants them to remember and see his love. He says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country, that is Esau, Edom, and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And verse five, and your own eyes, Israel, shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, we don't have time to jump into the full discussion of God's electing love in the situation, but it's very clear that God is making a choice and he is choosing between Israel, Jacob and Esau. So here we see God's love defined as God's sovereign choice to make Jacob his special people, to pour out his love in a special way to make Jacob and his descendants a special people in his plan of redemption. Hate in this scenario is defined as God's rejection of Esau and Edom as a nation. They were not chosen as God's special people. The same curse that that God spoke against Israel in Jeremiah 9 Now Malachi and God bring back, and God speaks it against Edom. And what's the effect of this? The effect of this is to remind them of God's truthfulness of his word. And just as God has loved Israel and promised to keep them safe, so now he's cursing Edom fully and finally. God communicates his sure wrath against Edom. Because what was Edom? They were the nation that constantly berated and opposed Israel throughout their time. They became a people jealous of God's love on Jacob. They oppressed them and pushed back. They abused them. So, so here is how God wants to remind them of his love. He says, look backwards. Look back and remember how I have established my covenant of love with your forefather, Jacob. Remember that, that I have chosen you. You are my special people on whom I'm pouring out my love and my covenant. And then he says, look forward. 
to when I'm going to judge Edom. I'm going to make destruction of them as a nation, and this will be a sign to you of my love. Now, at first, this seems like a sort of odd way for God to show his love to our minds. But there would be nothing, and there is nothing more amazing than to realize and come to understand that God has poured out his special love on his people. There's nothing more amazing and encouraging than for you as a follower of Jesus Christ to understand that God's love has been poured out in a very special and specific way on you as his chosen people. Even now, as believers in Christ, we have to understand that we are the direct objects of God's love. It's so difficult for us to grasp. In this time of waiting, the love of God can be a very difficult concept for us to understand, for us to revel in and rejoice in and to remember. Why? Because we still live in a sinful, broken world. And God says to his people and to us, I have loved you. I have loved you. In the New Testament, Paul picks up these words from Malachi and he says this. In other words, it is not that the children who by physical descendant, who are God's children, that is children of Abraham, physically. Why? Because then Ishmael would be a descendant as well. But it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated at the appointed time, I return, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. In chapter 9, verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children. Get this. They were conceived at the same time by her father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of love and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, Rebekah was told this. The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Our response, Paul anticipates, verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Paul responds, not at all. For he says to Moses, I shall have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And here's the point, brothers and sisters. It seems that many times... When people ultimately reject God, their first question is this love of God. Their first step away from God is the reality of his love. And God is pouring it out on all who will repent and believe. This is true of when believers lapse into apathetic lifestyles as well. If we reject this love of God, if we diminish that he loves us individually, we fall into half-hearted worship and we turn away into empty ritualism of our life. And we become cynical and incredulous regarding the reality of God's love, but Paul says, no, 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 remember this. In God's sovereign and divine grace, he has poured out his mercy and compassion on his people. Remember that. So he goes from there, Malachi does, with God. In verse 6, here's a second dispute. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is the, my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priest who despise my name. What's the dispute? The dispute is this, is that they are not honoring God as father and master. 
The question comes back from the people. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon the altar, God says. Here's a second question. But you say, how have we polluted you? God responds by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Notice the parallel statements. How have we despised your name? God says, because you polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? But God says, you've despised my table. Here's the answer of God. When you offer, verse 8, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? Is that not wicked? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Later on, he even says, why do you offer things that are stolen? Why do you steal things? Why do you use things that are diseased and lame and, and unclean? Why do you bring those to worship me and sacrifice? Verse 8, he gives an illustration. Would you do that to your human governor? Remember, they're under this Persian rule, so he's using language of the day. Would you bring that to your Persian governor for him to, to serve at his table? As a ruler where he has guests and family, where he's trying to display his glory, would he accept that kind of offering from you? The answer, obviously, is no. No. The governor's table where feasts and guests would sit, things that were stolen and diseased, would not communicate the proper honor and glory of his position. In the Mosaic Law, these kind of sacrifices were clearly rejected. God clearly commanded against them and forbade them from being used as sacrificial uh, offerings that were acceptable. And who is guilty? Who is God's focus here directly against? It's against the people, yes, but it's against the priests who allow it to come in. And in fact, he accuses them of even twisting God's word and, and teaching the people so that they actually fall into this sin. The priests were showing great contempt and leading the people to demean and insult their father, their master, who is the great king over the sovereign and sovereign over the world. Verse 10, look at this. God says, it would be better. It would be better for you just to shut the doors of the temple than to bring insulting sacrifices like this to me. Because when you do, you dishonor my name. You shame me in front of all the nations. Why would you do that? If you truly love me, if you truly want to honor me, why would you do that? It's better for you just to shut the doors and stop sacrificing than bringing sinful, wicked, disobedient offerings to me. Verse 11, God heightens the insult by, by stating that even if they, his people who have experienced his love, don't offer right sacrifices, who will? The nations will. The world will offer pure sacrifices of worship. Even if the nation of Israel does not, the nations will give proper honor and, and pure sacrifice to him. Well, how are they going to do that? Well, they're looking forward to the Messiah. We're looking forward to the promise of how the nations will come in and become worshipers, where the other prophets have prophesied there's a people who, will, who are not a people who will be my people, God says. So God heightens it. Look at the warning to the priest, though, as you move into chapter 2. It says, Oh, now, and now, O priest, verse 1, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already, already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. So you, you wonder why you're not prospering. You wonder why you're not experiencing the favor and the blessing of God now, priest. It's because... You're already under curse, whether you know it or not. It's the curse of the law. It's the curse of, obedience, of disobedience, where they should be experiencing the blessing of God for obedience. Now it's the curse. 
Look what God says in verse 3. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offspring, and you shall be taken away with it. What is God's application to his people, to his priests? What is he saying? He's saying, look, you bring in these unclean, dishonoring, disobedient sacrifices to worship me, and you say you're going to honor me with that, when in reality what you're doing is you're slapping me in the face. You are dishonoring my name among the nations. So what will I do to you? I'm going to smear dung on your face, just as you've done to me. But not only that, I'm not going to accept you. I'm going to cast you out with the dung. What's the picture? The picture is, if the people continue in their disobedience, they will be rejected by God. What a powerful statement. But yet, God is determined to preserve his covenant and his people. He makes a promise to his people in verses 5 through 9. He says, I want you to know that this covenant will stand. So if you turn and repent, if you actually obey, you will experience my life and my peace, just like I promised to Levi. And, and Levi obeyed, and those early priests obeyed, and they took seriously the commands of God, and they led the people into life and peace. And, and he says, and many were turned away from their sin. So then we come to Romans 12, the New Testament where we understand that there's direct implication for the leaders of the church today. Even as pastors, we can learn from how these priests were treated, how God rebuked them for their lack of obedience to his word. But as the New Testament believers, we understand that all of us have been called and made priests of God. And in Romans 12, here's what Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's covenant love that he poured out on you, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, because this is your true and proper worship. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, what's the implication? The implication is this. All of us are called to live lives of holiness and obedience. This is our life of service as God's people, to live holy, righteous lives. And as we do, we bring honor and praise to the King of Heaven. Through our lives of sacrifice and holiness and obedience. And how does this come about? Through the mercy and compassion of God that we have already experienced in Christ. The third accusation comes in chapter 2, verse 10, where the people begin to reject God as their father and creator. Notice how Malachi has combined these two, father and master and father and creator. There's this family image that is now permeating the letter, this book of Malachi. Look at verse 10, Malachi chapter 2. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? And he's directly speaking to his own people. He's not speaking to humanity in general. He's speaking to the people of God. Well, yes, he has. Verse 10. Then, why, or how then, are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? God's answer, by marrying those who take away who take you away to worship other gods and by divorcing the wife of your youth. What's the point? The point is that this relationship within the covenant family of God, namely marriage, is being trampled upon. 
These people, men specifically, are breaking their covenants with God by breaking their covenants with their wives. The very context that was built, or the very uh, um, institution that God built into creation to display his love and his mercy and his covenant with all people is being destroyed. God's covenant community is a family. And God has brought this family into existence by choosing Abraham, by choosing Jacob. He's created a family, and the marriages within this family, this covenant family, are supposed to reflect the glory and the covenant love of God. And the children that are born into this are supposed to learn by watching their parents live out the covenant love and see how it is to worship God and be faithful to that. So God uses marriage as an illustration to point out that they are that they treat their relationships in a very trite way. They're quick to break covenant. The question that the people ask, why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. The illustration is marriage. The problem runs deep in all of their relationships. They don't treat one another well. They don't relate to one another properly as covenant brothers and sisters under the covenant of God. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, our relationships towards one another in the church matter. They matter deeply. Marriages, yes, of course, this highlights it. How we treat our wives, husbands, matters to the glory of God. But to all of us, how we interact as we treat one another in the body of Christ as covenant members of the family of God under Christ matters because it displays our love to God, and our love to one another. And God has poured out his love on us to make us family, to break down the hostility between us, to make us one in Christ. And if we trample on that unity, if we do anything to cause this unity in this family, we're trampling on the honor of God. So Paul in Romans 12 says this, Love must be sincere, genuine. We are to hate what is evil and we are to cling to what is good. We are to be devoted to one another in love. So honor one another above yourselves. And how do we do this? We do it through the compelling love of God that's been poured out in our hearts. The fourth accusation is that God is not a God of justice. Verse 17 of chapter 2. And unfortunately we're going to have to fly through these last three. God says to the people, you have wearied the Lord with your words. People say, verse 17, but you say, how have we wearied him? Verse 17, God says, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? What's the problem? The people begin to question the reality of God's justice. They look on those who do evil, and they actually lie about God and say, see, look, see, look how their lives are so perfect and beautiful, and they're experiencing all of the good things of this life. See, God loves them, and therefore he must not love us. And they ask this classic question, where is the God of justice. In our day, we probably hear it worded this way. 
how can there be a good and all-powerful and all-loving God in heaven if, fill in the blank, this happens? How can he allow this to happen, especially to me, especially to you? The people are questioning his justice, but God's answer to this is not that he is unjust, but that he is patient. Don't confuse God's patience with injustice. Verse, or chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, God says he will send his messenger. His messenger is coming. And look at this. The messenger will come and he will refine and purify his people. Yes, but he's also going to judge and eradicate evil. The God of justice is on his way, Malachi says. And yes, he came first in the incarnation to lay down his life as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for the injustice of our sin. But he will come again as the God of justice to bring destruction and judgment on all who disobey. So in 2 Peter 3, Peter writes this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say this, Where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So where is the God of justice, brothers and sisters? The God of justice is coming. We cannot say that there is no God of justice. And sometimes when we ask this question, we borderline, as these people do, we borderline on saying, if there is no God of justice, then there is no God. That's what the people in Peter's day were saying. So brothers and sisters, we cannot forget that God's justice is coming, but right now we're experiencing his patience and his love and his mercy. What's the next dispute? Verse 6 of chapter 3. God says, first of all, in his character, I do not change. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Immediately, there is a statement of hope and grace spoken into this one. He reminds them that because of his faithfulness, because of his unchanging nature, they haven't been consumed already. The question many times comes up, especially speaking of the God of justice. Well, that's not fair. God is not fair. Paul would say that's not the right question. That's not the right statement. Because if God were fair, we would all be consumed already. So in verse 7, Malachi and God say to the people, return to me and I will return to you. Says the Lord of hosts. But the people say, how shall we return? Answer from God, 8 to 9. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. And God says, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Once again, we come to an issue of disobedience. Something that God has clearly commanded. This goes back to the message of Haggai. They were supposed to be bringing in uh, offerings for the temple to build it and to see it established. Here again, the people have fallen back into disobedience. They have not been worshiping God as he's commanded. 
And this really comes down to an issue of trust. They don't trust God. In this period of waiting, in this period of disillusionment, this period of financial difficulty, they're not trusting God, that he will keep his word, that he will be faithful, that he will keep his promises and care for his people. But I love it. God says to his people, if you will just put me to the test, if you will just trust me and take my word and obey me, I'm going to open the heavens and pour out my blessing on you. Like a torrential downpour of rain, God is waiting to open the heavens and pour down his blessing on his obedient people to provide for them, to care for them, to show them his love and abundant grace to them. At our grace-giving time, Pastor Steve read for us this extended text on 2 Corinthians 9, so I won't read the whole thing to you again, but I'll just read verse 8 of chapter 9. He says this, God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Brothers and sisters, God is compelling us by his love. He's saying, look, will you just trust me? I want to bless you. I want to pour out my grace and my provision for you. Will you just trust me and obey? God's love for his people is so deep that he desires to pour out his blessing on them. But we sit here and we question, oh God, do you really love me? I lack this, I lack this, I lack this. Do you really love me? And we're so consumed with our stuff that we fail to see the love of God. But God wants his honor to be put on display. And how does that happen? It happens as God People obey and love him. And here's the point of 2 Corinthians and Malachi. Look, God will be honored and come to much thanksgiving. Why and how? When we give and we obey, when we use our resources to show he is glorious and show that he is great and majestic. And instead of blinding people by our glory or the brightness of our bling, they might be able to see his glory on display. The final accusation, chapter 3, verse 13 which extends really to the end of the book. But God says to the people, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. The people respond, verse 13, how have we spoken against you? Verse 14, you have said, serving God is pointless. You have said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, keeping his commandments, or walking in his way and mourning before the Lord of hosts, that is, repenting of our sin and turning away from it? What's the use of this? It's pointless, the people say. So now the people, because of that, here's their response. They they call the arrogant person blessed. That ubiquitous... Instagram, hashtag blessed, with a picture of all the arrogance of the wealth and the power of this world. And we buy into that subtle lie that that's the definition of blessing. And God says, when you say that, you are speaking harsh words against me. And it crushes his heart as our father, as our God, as our creator, as our Lord and master. When we don't trust him and we look to the arrogant and the evil and we say to them, look, they prosper. They even put God to the test and he does nothing. Man, 
Malachi is such an important book for us in our American culture for us to have a right view of God's covenant love for his people and it doesn't fail. He is pursuing us. God is not unjust. He is just. He is our creator. He is our father. He is our master worthy of honor. And he's poured on his love on us and he's compelling us. He's drawing us back and saying, will you just come to me? Will you give me your lives? Will you worship and adore me as the one who truly deserves it? The way I want to conclude this morning is simply giving us a meditation on God's love for us. And then we're going to sing and respond to that love. But I thought we could, I could quote some hymns. I thought we could, you know, maybe think of some imagery that helps capture the love of God. But come back to God's own expression and God's own display of his love. So if you look in your Bible with me in Romans chapter 8, I just want to read a few verses for us. Romans 8 through the end of the chapter, and then we're going to come and sing and respond to God's love for us that compels us to lives of worship and holiness. So let's just begin in verse 26 of Romans 8. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. You're probably the ESV or the NIV, but just try to track with me. Verse 26 of Romans 8. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Verse 28, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Verse 31. So what then shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. And here's the essential question, verse 35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Let me read that again. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Verse 36 of the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Here's the answer though, verse 37, from God to the question, no. Despite all these things, the overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I am convinced, Paul says, that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. 
No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. 